Well, the sermon text this evening is going to come from the book of Titus. We're looking at Titus 3, 3 to 7. For context, I'm going to read starting in verse 1. Titus 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word. Amen. may be seated. Let me pray for us one more time as we jump in. Father, we pray right now that you would, through the power of your spirit, open up our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. College Church has had a genuinely blessed history throughout the years. Getting to know the congregation and becoming familiar with the people who compose it, I've been fascinated to think through what is it that has made this church effective for many years? What is it that must not be lost? So those words were written by Pastor Moody. Some of you may recognize them. They were in the afterword to the book by Edith Blumhofer called A History of College Church in Wheaton. It's available at the, at the bookstall at the, at the fireside area, if any of you have your interest piqued by that. I find the question, what is it that must not be lost, to be very interesting and very fascinating? It actually drove the content of, of his chapter in that, in that book. And you could actually say that it drives the content of the entire book of Titus itself. So, so Paul is looking at the island of Crete. He's looking at the churches on the island of Crete, and he's noticing, hey, there's false teachers who are coming in. They're teaching a gospel that leads towards lives that don't really, like lives that, and a doctrine that leads to lives that don't really care about holiness at all. Um, What we do doesn't really matter. And Paul is saying, sound doctrine that leads to godly living is what cannot, be lost. So in chapter one, he sets up elders in the church and says, these false teachers, they need to be removed from positions of authority. Chapter two and three, especially, here's what you need to teach. You need to teach sound doctrine that leads to godly living in that way. And then tonight, looking at Titus three, three to seven, what you see actually, even more interestingly than that, um, is that he actually stops the letter More than that, he really grounds an argument in the letter with what you could call a history of the church of Crete. So that's what he's doing in verses three to seven. He's stopping them. He's stopping his teaching for a second and just saying, hey, let me remind you where you came from so that you understand why we know where we're going and what we're doing in all of this. And because of the way that he does it, 
he really does it in a way that it shows this, this history of the church of Crete is a history of every church that was founded before any of the churches in Crete. It was the history of every church that was founded after as well. So, so really what it is, it, you, could, you could title this section a history of college church in Wheaton, an, an alternate history of college church in, in Wheaton, so to speak. And his main point is this. So if you're taking notes, you copy this down. Paul's point for us is that our mess is met by the mercy of God. That that, that is the history, that, that's the fundamental narrative of, of college church, of the churches in Crete, of, of, of all of God's church throughout the nations, that our mess is met by the mercy of God. So, so look with me, actually. He, he dives into it in verse 3, but look with me in verses 1 and 2, uh, just, just for context to understand why he's doing what he's doing there. So if you look at verse 2, what Paul says is this, hey, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show, show perfect courtesy towards all people. So what you see is that this history was written for a very specific purpose, which is to say, I want you to be gentle, humble, not quarreling with other people. You, you have the virtues of being humble enough to be able to live in society with grace so that, as we talked about last week, so that grace goes public in that way. And therefore, in light of that, what fuel do you need in order to be people who, who live like that. Therefore, we're jumping into the beginning of our story, kind of our, our past. What is, what is our past? It's our mess. And look, look, at, look, at me, uh, look with me in verse 3. This is the, the first act in the history of the church of Crete, of the church of college church. For, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So one of the first things that really you can notice about this is that, is that Paul's depiction of the human heart without Christ is dark. It's not simply just nice people who occasionally do bad things. It's far worse than that. It's, it is, uh, there's no obedience to God. Frankly, the only obedience that's present is obedience to these passions and pleasures that are entirely self-centered, that lead toward a society in which people are hating one another, being hated by one another, in part probably because of the, the foolishness that's evident in it. So I, oddly enough, as I, was, as I was kind of finishing up uh, my own study, I was listening to somebody else talk about this passage here. Um, and, and as they started talking, they, were actually, they actually stopped and they kind of made an argument to people. They were talking in, in America. They were like, look, I know that when you go to work every day, I know that when you're kind of living your normal lives uh, here in the States, I know that it doesn't seem like people are filled with, with envy or with malice towards one another, but, but I'm just telling you that they are. And he kind of gave like a two or three minute argument that, that what we see in terms of foolishness or what we see in terms of these other vices was actually present. And I almost started laughing. I, I thought like, what? Like, in 2008, did you either not have access to social media or cable television? Like, which of these two, or like, kind of like, what world really, like, was it that different in four, 14 years ago? I don't think we need to make that argument 
at all. I, th- I think it's quite clear to people today that, that it, a number of things uh, pop up in terms of, uh, of anger, and we, we don't even have to stop there. Um, I mean, if you just thought right now, could I think of an example right now in my head of some foolishness that, that would be evident from the human heart kind of in the broader culture? Or, or could I think of an example of what I would see as disobedience of the human heart? Like, could I think of one or two things specifically right now? Could I do that? And I think that we could, but I think actually that's the reason why we would be in a particularly dangerous place when we read verse 3. So, so when we're reading verse 3 and we see something like foolishness or malice or envy, our hearts can so easily jump to what we see in the broader culture that we've actually forgotten the first three words of the verse, which is this. Look, look with me. For we ourselves... And therefore, everything that's listed below that is not actually a depiction by Paul of the broader society out there, but is in fact actually a portrait, a picture of the human hearts of the people in this room, of the, of the person talking to you right now. It's not, what, what these verses are is not actually a, a pedestal kind of where we read it and think of ourselves, hey, we're kind of above all of these other people there. It, metaphorically, it would be much closer to kind of a wrecking ball that, that takes us off of a pedestal, that puts us on the same ground as everybody else, and really, more than that, setting us up uh, to fall on our knees and be prepared for the mercy of God uh, that will save us in that way. That's Paul's point here, to, to point us to the mess that we've made, to the mess, actually, that makes up the core of who we are. I think that if you were saved later in life, uh, this would be pretty easy. To, you'd, you would resonate. You'd be able to think through a number of, of things. Hey, yeah, I could easily think through some fights that I got into. I could easily think of some, some, sla- some passions and pleasures that had just enslaved me and that I was powerless. I, I tried to fight it. I tried to fight it, but I just couldn't. I think in this church, um, by God's grace, with, with multiple generations of Christian families, some of you were probably saved at the age of four. Uh, saved at the age of three, five, something like that, where, you, where you're just kind of reading this and saying, I, I can't quite picture as many things. What I would encourage you to do is look at verse three as kind of an alternate, if we're talking about the metaphor of, of a history of college church, um, an alternate history of your life. That, that what you could do is you could look inside of yourself and say, hey, all of these sins that I'm fighting, that by God's grace and mercy, he's helping me fight every single day. This is what would happen if his grace was removed and they were just unleashed in their full power in that way. What different story could be written in that way of of my life there? And the test of whether or not we understand this, coming off of the very first word, for, is this. Is my self-identity something that leads me to be kind and gracious to others? Or is it something that tends towards anger and bitterness at the confusion and foolishness that I'm seeing in the world around? Am I seeing myself as in the same bucket of humanity, lost and broken in sin? Or am I seeing myself in kind of a different bucket of better, morally righteous, wise, as opposed to somebody else by my own grace and by my own strength in that way? 
So that, that's Paul's point there. His, his point there is to say that we are a mess, but he, jump, he doesn't stop there. He, he, he jumps to verses four to seven, where we see the mercy of God. So, so read it with me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So these next three verses explain God's salvation. Because when the mercy of God meets humanity's mess, salvation is what's brought forth. The mercy of God is what causes it. And what's highlighted in these verses that I want to walk through with you is that it's the triune God who saves you. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So verse 4 begins by highlighting the mercy of God, the Father, that saves you. In light of the darkness of who we are, God's response of salvation, completely unmerited, is shocking. It is the goodness and loving kindness of God that sees us. So, so one author puts it like this. Do you ever make decisions by drawing up a list of pros and cons? Imagine God deciding whether to save us by a list of pros and cons. What's on the cons side? What are the reasons why God should condemn us? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, hating. What's on the pros side? What's on the list of reasons why God should save us? Nothing, absolutely nothing. There is no reason why God should save us. But then God writes across the page, my kindness, my love, my mercy. And that's the sentence that turns the novel, the history of all of our lives from from damnation, from despair to the hope of eternal life. And that alone, because it's not even as if Paul has kind of finished his talk about the human heart and the depravity that we have, and that he moves fully on to the salvation of God. It's almost as if he, it's, we're so hopeless that he can't stop going back to it because he interrupts uh, his, his talk about God to say, hey, by the way, it wasn't even your works. It's not even like you were in this sad state, you were in this sad condition, and then you turned, you kind of figured this out, and then you worked towards it a little bit to which he responded that way. It was nothing. He goes back again, not by works that you've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Because our works, as as I thought about this more, our works don't produce mercy. There's almost a very real sense, kind of a human sense in which the malice and envy that other humans have towards one another is almost, humanly speaking, a proper response to our lives. It's, it's almost as if, if you could see the heart that's inside of me, if you could see the evil, kind of the self-centeredness 
towards it, that, that you wouldn't be the sort of person who would look on me and be like, I really want good things for that person. Like I, when, the, when they do well, I, I'm so happy that that's happening there. It, it would be malice. I would just hope that not good things happen because I'm kind of looking at who you are. There, that's a very normal human response. And that's the bucket of every single person on earth but God. But God. And he was the one who was sinned against. We're merely kind of looking at each other and seeing sins that would offend us, that would annoy us in that way that are often not even directly against us. God himself being omnipotent, being omnipresent everywhere, and being the God who who is owed all allegiance, who owns this world, who created us, is the God who has sinned against directly every single time. I mean, if you did the thought experiment where looking at the phrase, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and you realize, okay, so that's talking about Christ. He's, he's not emphasizing right there Christ yet. What he's emphasizing is the, the mercy and love that, that sent Christ. But even if, if you realize that point in history, and you just think for a second, if there was kind of a counter in heaven um, similar to the one, I, I lived in a city one time and there was actually, I don't, I don't know for what purpose this billboard existed, but it was just the national debt. And so every time you would walk in Union Square, it was just, you would just see like so quickly moving up um, how, how fast it was. And it was, who knows what the number was. It changed every day. Um, if there was that billboard in heaven of just the number of sins against God directly, at him, just right next to the throne. And you're just kind of standing there, seeing him, seeing this counter, and seeing humanity. And you just know, in three or four days, God's going to appear on earth. And you just don't know anything about him. You see him in his power. You see the seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You see him in his glory. You see his power in that he made the world, and you just know, seeing all those, seeing all those sins just ticking up, 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 up. What's going to happen when he appears? It would shock you that it's actually himself in the flesh, in Christ, to come to save this world. But that's exactly the story of our world. It's the history of earth in that sense. So, so that's what's, that's what's happening there. You realize how deep and wide is the ocean of God's love. So Christian, what, what does this mean for you today? A couple of things. Obviously, spend some time thinking about your past. I would do that. But m- even more than that, spend time thinking about the depth of the mercy of God, especially if you're fighting a sin or temptation that you consistently are fighting throughout the course of your time. Every time you would tend to think, I think God's mercy is done with me. Think of the counter. Think of how many times, how gracious God has been throughout eternity. How deep you cannot exhaust that ocean. There is always hope. Turn to look at Jesus who is strong and who is kind to meet you. The other thing, if you would find yourself in a in a state, in a spot where you're kind of lukewarm towards God. You're just sort of in a, in a state. I feel like I'm going through the motions. I'm reading the Bible. I don't necessarily feel intimate with God. 
at the moment, I would look to his mercy there by, by not actually thinking of the counter of humanity, how many sins, but think of the counter of your life, starting at the day of your birth until today. You could think about it really, or until the day that the mercy of God was made manifest and appeared to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And think how high that number got. And when God that day reached out to you in mercy, that will give you a small taste of his heart towards you even now as you continue on to be with him in glory there. So, so, so this, this view of the mercy of God is what fuels our mercy and patience with those around us in that way. And it is one of the highest imitations that we could give of God. So what we're called to in this passage, because it's coming out of verses calling us to be gentle and courteous towards all people, because of this mercy of God, what we do in a very small, finite way is we try to incarnate this mercy of God towards others. So, so when they sin against me and that counter gets up to a high number of five, maybe six or seven, in, in a, even in a day, that what I do is look at how much higher my counter was towards God and then react with the same mercy and love in that way. This mercy of God, it fuels our lives of grace there. That's not all, though. It's, it is not just the mercy of God that leads towards this salvation. That's the point. The point of verse 5, look with me at the, the second half of it, is that it's the Spirit's power, not our own, that accomplishes this. So, so it says in verse 5, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So the quest of moral improvement outside of Christ is, is kind of like pulling weeds in a field. You could go all day, and by the end of the day, it might actually look pretty good. A lot of sweat, a lot of toil, but it looks pretty good. What happens two days later when you come back and visit the field? Maybe the same sort of weed that you were pulling, maybe a different kind. It, it, an endless cycle, day in and day out, thinking, I, I continue to pull, continue to pull. And, and the soil just keeps producing things. And, and over time, people become more hopeless, frankly, that they could ever change who they are. What you need fundamentally is not more work, but new soil. And that's exactly what we're pointed to in this promise of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. 500 years before the birth of Christ, God promised to a sinful people through Ezekiel in chapter 36, he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. As I was thinking about it, um, it I thought it was actually quite providential that while I was writing this section, 
It was, it was towards the end of a day. Um, I had been sitting in my chair for a while, I, kind of the normal afternoon fatigue, maybe even a, a little bit worse, uh, was happening. I kind of fought it for an hour, a lot of brain fog, couldn't continue uh, to, to think and to write and to process. So I left to try to go to the gym, try to get some sort of endorphin rush, kind of try to become a new person, come back, write it, finish it, be done uh, for the day. Was, was, that was the thought. And it went, it went fairly well for a time. I remember being tired there a little bit while I was working out, but generally it was good. Uh, it was fine. Uh, as I was walking out, though, I kind of felt a little jolt of stress uh, because while I was working out, I was thinking mainly about what I was doing. But w- as soon as I was leaving, I realized, oh, no, I, I did this entirely, like literally entirely right now for the point of being able to go back and write. And as I was walking out, I could feel again, I'm just not still sort of the same brain fog. It's, it's not gone. As I was driving back on president here, it only got worse. And I think because I was, um, because I was studying this passage, I got out of my car and full sentence kind of popped into my head, like, I'm just not a new person than, than where I left. I just kind of closed the door, walked back into the office, and was really kind of frustrated. And I thought, about 30 seconds after that, I think the Spirit of God pressed on me that what I was experiencing right there of kind of, hey, some sort of tension, there's something I don't like, go out on a quest, work out, become kind of a new person, come back, and then all of a sudden I'm just sort of the same person that I was when I left, is really kind of a mini parable, a a little picture of what my life was before the age of 17, of of every single moral endeavor uh, without Christ. It's just, I'm feeling, I'm seeing that there's a problem in my life. I'm seeing a a growing awareness of, of what it's, the negative effects that it has. And then I go on some sort of quest, some sort of renewed energy to fix it, And I come back, and maybe I come back and realize at the beginning, it just didn't work. Or sometimes it was, it kind of worked, but all of a sudden, to go back to the the soil analogy, a different weed is popping up. It's just not quite done. Probably worst of all, I pull that one, another one actually does pop up, but I don't see it. And, and now all of a sudden, I'm just prideful and arrogant and just viewing myself as kind of this morally superior person who has life figured out in that way. Um, so, so much so that the people around me are just very clearly noticing this pride in it. The, the regeneration of the spirit is opposite of the human endeavor for moral self-improvement, fundamentally because it's coming from the outside. It is the Holy Spirit who's coming in, reaching in into our hearts and saving us in that way. And because he provides the two fundamental things that we can't do. The cycle of of moral improvement that always fails shows us that we don't need modifications. We need a new heart. We need to be fundamentally changed, transformed. He provides that by regeneration, new birth is how Jesus puts it in John 3. We're given a new heart that loves God, that obeys his commandment as a gift by the Holy Spirit. And there is a cleansing, there's a a renewal, a washing of the Holy Spirit. 
Lewis talks about the fact that he thinks one of the strangest things about humans is the fact that we think that just because there's a passage of time that somehow sin is washed away. Even if that cycle of moral improvement worked and we could fix ourselves, it doesn't fix the fundamental problem of our standing before God. We still need a washing, a renewal, a cleansing by the blood of Jesus, which is where he goes next. It's all of this, the, the mercy of God leading to the regeneration of the spirit through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by him, we, are, uh, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By being united with Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, we died. The debt that he paid was our debt. Our sin was placed on him, and now his righteous standing that he earned through his perfect life was given to us, and we are justly declared innocent before God. All of this through Christ, so that the life we were living doesn't end in destruction, but if hope of eternal life. So all of it happens because of the mercy of God when that meets our sinful, hopeless state. I love the hymn, uh, Thy Mercy, My God. It goes like this. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness to bark. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness, my spirits revive, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. Great Father of mercies, thy goodness I own, and the covenant love of thy crucified Son. All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. So what is the secret of College Church? What is it that cannot be lost? A number of good answers. But if we want our proclamation of the gospel to go out in power, then hearts that are full of joy at the mercy of God is one of the best defenses that we can have. So let's pray to God for them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving wretches like us. Thank you for the mercy that was shown in Christ. And Father, we pray. We pray that you would impress this on our hearts and our lives so that our very nature is changed in how we're interacting with others and how we interact towards you and how we see ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.